This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, The Green News Report, Counterspin, and The Majority Report. And a note that this episode uses strong, potentially offensive language to refer to climate deniers, but it's probably still not strong or offensive enough. Elon Musk has just announced on the company's website that the company is going to be opening up all of its patents for other automakers and others in the auto industry to use. It is rare and it is bold. Tesla is sharing its secrets, opening its patents for the world to see. We haven't seen this type of move from any automaker. This is completely unusual when it comes to the auto industry. Tesla's decision to open up its patents is a perfect example of both the allergy to convention this electric car company seems to have, and also the tremendous scope of its ambition. They're not just trying to build a car company, they are trying to build a whole new industry, one that would mean a shift from today's gas guzzlers to zero emissions electric vehicles with massive implications for the economy and for the climate. Tesla is that rarest of success stories, a successful and innovative young American automaker. With a stock price that has exploded over the past five years, an astounding $30 billion market valuation, and a claim for selling what Consumer Reports considers the best car you can buy. I had a chance to sit down with Elon Musk, the visionary behind it all. So we were doing research when we were doing one, a segment on Tesla, and we were going back to the archives of American car startups that have failed. Right, this which is, is a big archive, I'm sure. Yeah, and it's actually a big, it's a big <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia page. Absolutely. It was actually kind of fun. It's like, oh, I didn't like, know wow. they, someone tried. I was like, wow, well, you know, all these dreamers. Yes, like, a big graveyard. So why is it, why are you guys, how have you avoided that fate so far? Why, why is Tesla working so far? Well, I, I think, you know, when you look at the other car companies, uh, there wasn't really any big technology discontinuity. There wasn't some sort of step change in technology that warranted the creation of a new car company in America. Whereas with the advent of electric cars, I think it's the biggest change uh, in automotive since the, the, the moving production line. It's a really a substantial change, and it does lend itself to uh, expertise from outside the car industry. And I think that provides an opportunity for a company like Tesla um, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm, I've, I've somewhat been surprised at, at how much um, a, of a lead we have. We actually d don't want to have uh, uh, the, the lead we have. Uh, we're, we're hoping that uh, other car companies would follow us faster. You just had this patent decision, and this this gets to the point you're saying. You, you're further ahead from you're further ahead of other car companies than you would like to be. Yeah, because there's a certain kind of broad interest you have in the diffusion of electric cars, right? Right. Is that, what's, is that what is driving your recent decision to essentially not pursue uh, intellectual property claims uh, on your own patents? Yeah, we, we decided to, to open up the, the, the patents um, because we think it's important that, that there be a lot of electric cars in the world. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, is this really an altruistic decision? It, you know, uh, it, does altruism, altruism e even exist? No company would really do that. Uh, but I think it's important to bear in mind that um, we're really all on the same ship, uh, you know, of, of being, being Earth. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if Tesla succeeds, but, uh, but then uh, the, the sort of climate is destroyed, I mean, I'm not sure that actually helps uh, Tesla. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's sort of like... Like, let's say you want to... Well, and the oh, AC, yeah. you have to crank the AC, which runs down the battery. Yeah, <laughs> right, it's a self-defeating situation. But, I mean, I mentioned the appropriate analogies, but, I mean, a ship-based a ship analogy might, might be appropriate here, where it's like, let's say there's a, a, there's a bunch of people on a ship and there's a bunch of holes in the ship. And, you know, we're, 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 we're quite good at sort of bailing the water out of our section 
uh, and we've, we've invented this nice bucket, um, it, it would be foolish of us not to share that bucket design, because if the ship goes down, we're going with it. You talked about, when you released the patent, about how quickly we kind of need to get our act together to, to forestall real climate problems. Right. Um, and it seems to me with the political system the way that it is, that the, really the only hope is just an incredible explosion innovation. Uh, yeah. What so are the, living hope. How hopeful are you about that explosion of innovation? What are the obstacles you see given that you're working at the frontier of battery capacity and, and, and all this stuff? Yeah, I, I think that the, the biggest concern I have is, is, that, is, the, is the sheer size of the industrial base that is uh, based on, on gasoline or diesel or sort of fossil fuels. Um, you know, the fact that there's 2 billion vehicles on the roads worldwide, um, there's 100 million new, new gasoline cars made a year. Um, e even if all new cars were electric, it would take 20 years to change out the fleet. And of course, we're very far from all new cars being electric. Um, so um, that, that's what gives me a lot of concern about the, the future uh, from a, a climate perspective. Um, we're you know, quickly exhausting the, uh, the carbon capacity of the, the oceans and atmosphere. Uh, and. Um, but we're not quickly moving towards electric cars or, or It's funny, you're, you yeah. sound more pessimistic than I would have imagined you. Like, I would yeah. imagine that you're professionally optimistic because you're doing I am something... I'm, yeah, I would say I'm naturally optimistic. But... Right, I mean, you're doing something that, you know, you'd have to be an optimist to start an electric car company, basically. Yes. Or to start a space company or to start yeah. a solar company, right? Um, what will it take to, to basically have the next 10 years of, say, solar and electric renewable uh, energy look like the last 10 years of smartphone development? I'd love to say that that's even possible, and, and for the, the, the <laughs> I'd love to say it's possible. But uh, the, um, the the thing that's difficult to to appreciate, well, I, I suppose if if people think about it for a moment, it, it's it, maybe it's not that hard. The it, it's the sheer size of the economy that that depends on hydrocarbons. Right. Uh, it's it's truly staggering, uh, you know, to to consider. So the. I mean, the number of factories that have to be built to produce uh, batteries and electric cars, uh, produce solar panels, um, it, it's enormous. Uh, you know, it, it's, if you think of all the oil fields and the, the, the gas fields and, and the refineries, and, and you're replacing, you're trying to replace that infrastructure, which is trillions of dollars. So uh, it would be difficult for us to move too, too fast, but at the same time, uh, I mean, if, if we said, if we said, like, okay, let's go as fast as, as possible, um, which we're certainly not not going, it, it would still take a long time. Uh, so, that, the thing that that's the thing that I guess makes me a little bit concerned, or more of a more than a little bit concerned about the future, is that uh, uh, the, the, the 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 vast amount of infrastructure that has to change, the legacy stuff that's all just yeah, sitting it's just there, so big, it's so big. Um, do yeah. You, do you think that we are properly that that right now the market? and the educational system is properly allocating talent into the areas that we need. Because it strikes me that right now, when Instagram sells for billions of dollars and you sure. can make an a, a iPhone game app that makes a lot of money or go sell mortgage-backed securities, right. that we're not necessarily getting people to go do things like solve the really tough problems having to do with solar engineering or battery capacity that are going to be the thing we need to solve, or even carbon sequestration, to, to, to make this problem solvable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough thing. I mean. Um the, the the biggest problem that we have right now is the, is that we have a, a breakdown in the market system. Now, I'm ordinarily quite a, a, a big believer in the market because um, the market is just the sum of individuals' decisions. Um, but when there's a breakdown in the information mechanism of the market, uh, that that's where things go awry. Um, and uh, so, 
because there's no price on, on carbon emissions, um, it, it makes things that are carbon producing very rewarding because the true price is not being paid. So if you're a, pet a petrochemical engineer, you can earn a tremendous amount of money, but you shouldn't really be earning that huge amount of money because, uh, you, you know, it's... Anyway, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's the, the the market mechanism is, is broken. It's, it's a classic, classic economics problem: tragedy of the commons, right. or uh, the atmosphere that we all have. That yeah, I mean, you see this in international uh, fishing stocks, where there's no, uh, you know, since uh, no one sort of owns that particular fishing area, it'll get fished to extinction, um, and because uh, there's no price uh, for that. So um, there's no price for for for. for carbon, so we, we, we do all these things that uh, cause uh, long-term damage. Elon Musk is a bit of a brilliant guy. He's actually the only person uh, that has ever started in the U.S. Uh, two different companies that have a valuation over a billion dollars. Now, he started more companies than that, and they're all successful, but two of them went over a billion dollars. So the guy kind of knows what he's doing. Now, Tesla's been fairly successful. That's uh, one of his uh, larger companies, obviously. Uh, but he decided that he was going to do a bold move anyway and say, look, well, I have all these patents that make the Tesla so interesting to people, that's why they're buying it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to release them. That's kind of amazing. So he wrote an op-ed explaining why. Let's go through that. He said, Tesla Motors was created to accelerate the advent of sustainable transport. If we clear a path to the creation of compelling electric vehicles, but then lay intellectual property landmines behind us to inhibit others, we are acting in a manner contrary to that goal. Tesla will not initiate patent lawsuits against anyone who in good faith wants to use our technology. He's saying, look, we created this technology. Yes, I'm profiting off of it, and we'd like to profit more. Of course, they're capitalists. They believe in that, right? Uh, but he's saying at the same time, the part of the point was to get us off the fossil fuels to help the world. And if people are not following in our footsteps as we thought they were going to, well, we got to fix that. Now, he also has his own self-interest here, which I'm going to get to in a second, but that's a great move for the world. So he continues, we felt compelled to create uh, patents out of concern that the big car companies would copy our technology and then use their, their massive manufacturing sales and marketing power to overwhelm Tesla. The unfortunate reality is the opposite. Electric programs or programs for any vehicles that doesn't burn hydrocarbons at the major manufacturers are small to non-existent constituting an average of far less than 1% of their total vehicle sales. So he's saying, look, man, we thought, oh, my God, we've got to compete with these other electric cars that are going to come out. Turns out they didn't even bother trying to compete with us. And that's not where the competition is. So by all means, have the patents. Let's get some real competition because we need more electric cars. We've got to switch away from fossil fuels. All right. Of course, he also needs more charging stations throughout the country. And the more electric cars there are and the more companies that follow him, the more charging stations there'll be. So look, he's obviously an incredibly bright guy. He's not just doing it out of the goodness of his heart, but you can do the right thing and then get good results for yourself at the same time. And if you do that, bless your heart. 
So he continues to explain. When I started out with my first company, Zip2, I thought patents were a good thing and worked hard to obtain them. And maybe they were good long ago, but too often these days they serve merely to stifle progress, entrench the positions of giant corporations, and enrich those in the legal profession rather than the actual inventors. So that's really interesting because we talk about the drug companies all the time. We know you have to invest a lot of money to, uh, to create these interesting drugs, and in his case, interesting cars, right? And you get patents for that. But sometimes they wind up abusing those patents in a way where people lose their lives, especially in the pharmaceutical uh, case, because they don't have access to those drugs at reasonable rates. We're not saying you give them away, of course not, right? And here he's saying, oftentimes these patents are overrated anyway. Okay, let's get to actually doing innovation instead of going to court and uh, fighting over patents. He continues, given that the annual new vehicle production is approaching 100 million per year, and the global fleet is approximately 2 billion cars, it's impossible for Tesla to build electric cars fast enough to address the carbon crisis. By the same token, it means that market is enormous. Our true competition is not the small trickle of non-Tesla electric cars being produced, but rather the enormous flood of gasoline cars pouring out of the world's factories every day. So, and finally, he concludes by saying, we believe that applying the open source philosophy to our patents will strengthen rather than diminish Tesla's position in this regard. So it's good for Tesla, good for the country, good for the world. Hey, if you could actually pull that off, more power to you. And so he announced that recently, and what happened just this week? Two new companies saying, hey, you know what? We might just take you up on that offer. Here's Nissan's spokesperson saying, we welcome others joining in the effort as we believe universally compatible charging will further accelerate electric vehicle adoption. So the battle is joined, but this is a good battle, a battle to produce more electric cars and get us to the right place. And then BMW also joins, and they say they have had talks with Tesla on how to further strengthen the development of electromobility on an international level. So up and at them, there we go. All of a sudden, it's not just Tesla anymore. Here comes Nissan, here comes BMW, and this is a race we can all get behind. What I love is when people do the right thing, and by the way, profit off of it, great, okay, and make the world a little better. So, more power to all of Bill in Fallbrook, California, watching Free Speech TV. Hey, Bill, what's up? Yeah, Tom, um, I had a question about uh, the electric cars. If they're burning uh, part fuel or even all electric, and they plug into their electric outlet, aren't they burning gas or, I mean, uh, coal? It depends on how the electricity was generated. If you're doing it in in Portland, Oregon, and you're getting your electricity from from the uh, water power? from the water power on the Columbia River, then you know you're burning water flowing down the Columbia River. Which, by the way, when when we lived in Portland, uh, it's about I think three or four percent more expensive, but you get electricity that's 100 percent hydropower. 
And uh, if you live in parts of Texas or Iowa, those two states, 20% of their electricity is produced by the wind. So if you've got an electric car, um, if you lived in Germany, you know, they're producing half their electricity from rooftop solar, and that uh, that rooftop solar is all on residential houses. So you can generate your own electricity from the sun off the roof of your house and power your car. So there's a lot of ways to do that. But you're right. If, if, if you're plugging your car in and you're getting the electricity from a coal-fired power plant, then you're basically burning coal in your car. The thing is, though, you burn less coal in your car via electricity because the big power plants are so much more efficient at converting coal into electricity than you would be burning an equivalent amount of gasoline in your car because having all these little tiny motors in these cars, these 300-horsepower engines moving cars around, when probably um, out of that 300 horsepower, only 30 or 40 horsepower of it is really needed at any one given time. You only need the, 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 mass, the vast majority of it for acceleration. And, in fact, I remember uh, General Motors uh, sponsored my radio program back, oh, three years ago or so. And, and for, for our, on our commercial stations, we would talk about the, you know, this in the commercials. And, and for a, every month, for six months, I think, I had a different GM car. And one of them was this giant SUV that had an eight-cylinder engine in it. And when you're driving down the highway, four of the cylinders shut down. They literally stopped stopped functioning, and it turned into a four-cylinder engine. Because once you got up to highway speed, and here I am driving a 6,000-pound SUV down the highway at 65 miles an hour, and I'm looking down, and it's showing me that I'm getting 55, 60 miles to the gallon. So, you know, it, having all these small um, power plants in, under the hoods of all our cars is wildly inefficient. So even if we just continued to use oil or gas natural gas or coal-fired power plants to generate our electricity, and we had electric cars, it would be more efficient and less expensive, by the way. Talk to, talk to people who own electric cars. It's a lot less expensive than buying gasoline. Buying electricity is less expensive than buying gasoline. And in both cases, if you're buying it from a fossil fuel source, you're simply paying for fossil fuels. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. You've reached today's activism update segment, a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's update, racing towards renewables from the Solutions Project. And before I go on to today's update, a word about sports in general, whether you're a fan of sports or completely and 
utterly apathetic towards sports like me, it's important to acknowledge that sports and pop culture carry weight with the majority of our citizenry. So anytime we can sneak some politics into their viewing and fandom, whether they realize it or not, we should totally capitalize on that opportunity. Which brings us to NASCAR. NASCAR is particularly popular in rural, vote-against-your-own-best-interest parts of the country. Having a woman who describes herself as a vegan hippie chick with a race car get some serious positive attention competing at the Chicagoland Speedway with her entirely solar-powered vehicle is worth celebrating. Leilani Munter drove her Tesla Model S from Charlotte, North Carolina up to Chicago, defying the stereotype that electric cars aren't effective for long-distance travel. Solutions Project co-founder Mark Ruffalo met Munter at Chicagoland and drew more attention to her sponsor, Prairie Gold Solar, as the race's grand marshal. Munter described a supportive response from the racing community following her performance. Quote, I was invited into the media center after the race and was asked a lot of interesting questions about how I was combining my efforts in racing with my environmental initiative. I had a few people come up to me after and say, I feel really strongly about what you said in there and really am happy that someone in our sport is talking about these things. As green energy infiltrates all aspects of American life and culture, building support for governmental and community initiatives becomes much simpler. So far this year, legislation has been proposed in New York State, Connecticut, and California for everything from overarching reform to microgrid efficiency upgrades to increasing consumer choice. Take a moment to capitalize on the momentum by passing on the story of Munter's solar-powered performance and checking out thesolutionsproject.org for updates on state-level legislation efforts. Contributing to the Sea change is sometimes as easy as clicking the share button and opening an unsuspecting friend's eyes. Interesting story out of Hamburg, Germany, where Hamburg has put together a plan that would eliminate the need for cars altogether in the city within 20 years. And the plan would uh, make the city greener, it would make the city healthier, it would make it, as they say, a more pleasant place to live. And the plan is to create these pedestrian and bike paths that would connect the city's existing green spaces together. And it would also provide a way to really commute all over the city without needing a car. Now, this is a separate thing, Lewis, from what some have reported, which is Hamburg is going to outlaw cars in 20 years. Eliminating the need is very different than banning, isn't it? Right. I don't expect any city in Germany to outlaw cars, David. Germany is one of the biggest auto, perhaps the biggest auto manufacturer in the world. And um, I just don't see them doing that. This is connected to global warming and climate change. Hamburg recognizes that the city's median temperature has increased 1.2 degrees Celsius over the last 60 years, which is far more than in other European cities. And uh, this, this, I think, is such a good idea because I'm not about banning cars. I have a car. I like driving. I understand how it's sometimes nice to be able to get in your car and go wherever you want. I co totally get that. But the reality is that within major cities, here in New York City, 
we don't really need cars. In other words, people still jump in a SUV to be brought up 7th Avenue, down 7th Avenue in the exact same way that you would go on the subway. And we're really not adding anything. If we had a better public transit system, we would be able to hopefully get more cars off of the road. And there still are parts of New York City that are not that well connected with public transit. I would love it if you did not have these cars on the road such that you only get your car when you're leaving the city to go somewhere else, but that within the city you just don't need it at all. It would be so good for the environment. It would be good for people's frayed nerves from sitting in traffic. It would just be very good overall. I see no right reason why a Manhattan in its entirety, or for the most part, couldn't just be a series of electric trolleys that, that come and go and bring people to all their desired destinations. I mean, the traffic there is just so absurd. I mean, it, the, the city is filled with these eight-cylinder town cars bringing people not even really very far. The trips take 45 minutes because of traffic. I have not taken a cab at all by myself in New York City in the nine months that I've lived here. The one time I took a cab was because I was with a group of people and they said, let's jump in a cab. We're paying for it and we like cabs. And I said, okay. Took us longer than the subway would have. It made absolutely no sense. I only get my car when I am driving to one specific place I go that isn't very well connected. It's kind of out in the distance in Queens or when I leave the city. Otherwise, it doesn't even cross my mind to get my car. And uh, I think that this is great what Hamburg is doing. I look forward to seeing what happens with it. So the denialists are still out there, Desi Doyen. Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll never stop. Uh, but I've noticed since last week's big announcement by the Obama administration's EPA that they would be requiring carbon emissions reductions, there has not really been much of a full-throated defense from Republicans from the climate change deniers, or at least not as much as I would have expected. Yes, the response does seem to be muted, but President Obama is nonetheless pushing back anyway against the climate change denial industry and and their friends in Congress that are trying to stop these first ever carbon emission standards for power plants. The science is compelling. The baseline fact of climate change is not something that we can afford to deny. In his first full-length interview ever on climate change for the new Showtime documentary TV series, Years of Living Dangerously, Obama pushed back against climate science denying Republicans in Congress. If you profess leadership in this country at this moment in our history, uh, then you've got to recognize that this is going to be one of the most significant long-term challenges, if not the most significant long-term challenge that this country faces and the planet faces. The good news is the American public is way ahead of politicians and supports climate action. New polls show the vast majority of Americans support the new emission standards for power plants, even if it raises prices. And those are currently estimated to be no more than about the cost of a gallon of milk per month. But Republicans in Fox News and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce have pretended that it's going to destroy the economy, put us out of business, and result in everyone freezing in the dark. That's right. The climate 
climate change denial industry claims really are just untrue. For example, in 2011, the Brad blog obtained exclusive secret tapes from one of the billionaire Koch brothers' super secret meetings in Aspen, Colorado, in which billionaire David Koch praised New Jersey Governor Chris Christie for withdrawing from the regional greenhouse gas initiative. Only a few weeks ago, he announced that the New Jersey that New Jersey would be withdrawing from the greenhouse gas initiative. Did you hear that guy booing the environment at the yeah. end of that clip? <laughs> that Brad blog exclusive was also picked up by Showtime's Years of Living Dangerously. But in the clip, David Koch says that the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in the Northeast uh, would raise energy costs, reduce economic growth, and lead to very little, if any, benefit for the environment. Is David Koch correct? Absolutely not. Real-world data proves that they're wrong. States that have already reduced their carbon emissions actually lead the nation in economic growth. New England, which joined that regional greenhouse gas initiative that New Jersey withdrew from, their emissions cap-and-trade agreement has achieved 40% emissions reductions, residential electricity bills have fallen 7%, and economic growth in the region is actually running ahead of the rest of the nation. It's as if those people have been lying to us. Yep, and you know what? New Jersey is now lagging the rest of the nation in economic growth. Since Chris Christie pulled out of that initiative after secretly meeting with David Koch. Yep. And more evidence that cutting emissions is good for the economy. Germany's steady long-term transition to 100% renewable energy has had its ups and downs, but it hasn't hurt the German economy. Bloomberg News this week reports that Germany now has the unusual problem of deciding what to do with a budget surplus for the third year in a row. There are a number of ways a journalist might respond when an interview subject makes outlandish statements, like calling human-induced climate change a notion that some are putting out there that they don't agree with. But when ABC reporter Jonathan Carl got that earful from GOP star Senator Marco Rubio on this week, May 11th, Rubio's evidence was that our climate is always changing and natural disasters have always existed. Carl chose to conclude the segment like this. It's talk like that that Rubio hopes will appeal to the conservatives he'd need to win the Republican nomination. It's a clear example of a journalist adopting the mentality of a campaign strategist or political operative. Sure, a hard right stance would go over better with the GOP base. But a reporter whose first loyalty was to the truth might have included acknowledgement that Rubio's stance is dramatically and dangerously at odds with science, rather than more musing on his political fortunes.
very largely, again, a political thing. But in the um, Senate Energy Panel yesterday, voted 12 to 10 to advance a bill that would bypass the, the president and approve construction of Keystone XL. Mary Landrew and Joe Manchin, Democrats, joined the Republicans in voting for the measure. Harry Reid's not going to let the bill hit the floor. This is basically one of those things where you let Manchin and Landrew, who are in red states looking at Senate challenges, get a free vote to make them look like they're morons, uh, which will help in the eyes of their voters. So... I gotta say, Manchin's looking pretty stupid to me. I might have to reevaluate how I'm voting in this in this here election cycle. Damn, this guy really just seems to be uh, completely um, less than one dimensional in his thinking. I think he deserves my vote now. She might got a D next to her name, but I don't think she's committed to the future viability of planet Earth, and that makes me think. This is the type of uh, lady I want. Can Joe Manchin maybe uh, shoot a hole in the side of a pipeline and? Allow all the stuff to spill out over. That would probably, I'd probably vote D all the way down the ticket. Hey, any chance Mary Landrew could pour a little uh, more oil into our uh, our lobster tra- our shrimp traps? Because if that could happen, then show sure I would vote for her. I watched this town hall years ago with this guy Gene Taylor, who was a Democrat who represented Mississippi, and I think he finally lost, but he hung on. He, he kept hanging on. Partially because he did have a couple of pretty populous positions. But I remember this was right when the Tea Party was blowing up. And they would ask him questions in town hall, in this town hall. I watched it for about 40 minutes. And he was almost getting to the point where he was like, oh, no, look, look, I agree with you. The idea of modern civilization is a communist plot. No question. Where I have a minor disagreement is I'd like you to get some of that Social Security money that them Jews cooked up up north. I mean, why shouldn't you get some of that? And they were just like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I like the way. Well, I don't know. I appreciate him questioning modern science. This is really, really bizarre. A Republican, in a recent speech condemning the Obama administration's new EPA carbon emission regulations, his name is Brandon Smith, he's of course a Republican, says that we have proof that humans are not affecting the climate on Earth because the temperature is the same on Earth as it is on Mars. And following his logic, if humans were having an impact on the temperature here, then the temperature would be far warmer than it is on Mars. Um, Okay, I'll read you his quote. As you sit there in your chair with your data, we sit up here in ours with our data and our constituents and stuff behind us. I won't get into the debate about climate change, but I'll simply point out that I think in academia, we all agree that the temperature on Mars is exactly as it is here. Nobody will dispute that. 
Yet there are no coal mines on Mars. There are no factories on Mars that I am aware of. By the way, Smith happens to be the owner of a mining company called Mohawk Energy. So, first of all, he's just wrong, right? If you just look up the temperature on the surface of Mars and the temperature on the surface of the Earth, according to NASA, the average Earth temperature is 57 degrees Fahrenheit. That is 138 degrees warmer than Mars's average of negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. But let's forget that. These guys seem to forget that the atmosphere is completely different on each planet. The distance from the sun is completely different on every planet. And thus, any comparison of the surface temperature on one planet versus another would neither prove nor disprove the long-term effect of human activities on Earth and the impact on the climate. This guy's just an idiot. There are so many factors, and we just have to assume that uh, his best interests are, of course, protecting his business and making as much money as possible, uh, despite what it will do to the planet. I was thinking that we've actually had a guest on this program compare Earth to other planets or, or heavenly bodies uh, to make a case that, uh, whatever, to make different cases that are not scientifically backed. I interviewed this guy named Mike McHugh several years ago. He's a Christian homeschooler, and he was trying to explain to me why he believes the moon is really, really young, that the moon hasn't been around nearly as long as science tells us. And he said, David, the amount of dirt, the, 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 the thickness of the layer of dirt on the moon doesn't correspond logically to the amount on Earth given how long we are told the moon has been around. And it was the same exact explanation there. Well, number one, the moon has a completely different atmosphere or lack of one than does Earth. So any kind of comparison would be irrelevant. And by the way, you're not even considering the relative size of the moon compared to the Earth. This seems to be something that comes up time and time again, either when trying to disprove climate change or trying to prove religious-based theories on science and physics and astronomy, a complete disregard for basic differences between different planets and satellites. Today, wildfires all across the West, but some very, very big news from down under. Yes, indeed. Some very controversial news from Australia's Conservative Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. He was the person who said that under a carbon price, a leg of lamb would cost $100. He's lied about climate change, and today he has taken Australia backwards. The right-wing administration of Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who is a prominent climate science denier, has finally succeeded in repealing Australia's landmark carbon tax on the nation's biggest polluting industries. It's a huge flip-flop from Abbott, who advocated for a carbon tax back when he was out of power in 2011. If you want to put a price on carbon, uh, why not just do it with a simple tax? The repeal this week was condemned by environmental groups and Australia's opposition leader, Bill Shorten. History will judge Tony Abbott very harshly 
for refusing to believe in genuine action on climate change. Tony Abbott is sleepwalking Australia to an environmental and economic disaster. Tony Abbott has demonstrated time and time again that he is an environmental vandal with no view of the future. Australia has the highest emissions per person in the world. That's due to its heavy reliance on coal. But the carbon tax on the largest polluters was successful. In just two years, it reduced Australia's electricity sector emissions alone by 5%. And millions in tax rebates were going to be returned to Australian households. This is amazing to see. It comes after two of the hottest summers in Australian history. Yep. And for Tony Abbott to turn back the clock like this. Why? It's a gift to the biggest polluters, the biggest industries in Australia, which are, of course, the biggest financers of Tony Abbott's campaigns. Underscoring what this fight has always been about by those pretending climate change is not going on, this is about protecting the profits of the fossil fuel industry. Period. End of story. It's always the same. It's just a shame. That's all. I could say I mentioned uh, yesterday, guys, Publius over at americablog.com writing about uh, the methane problem and global warming and the possibility of stepping into a methane-induced spiral, a positive feedback loop that would spiral us down into a great extinction. And some idiot called, well, I shouldn't call our listeners idiot. This guy was an idiot, though. Some some idiot called and said, do you know about the emperor penguins? And I said, no. And he said, well, the emperor penguins are almost going extinct. A group of them almost died because there was too much snow in Antarctica. They got cut off and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, where'd you get this? You've been listening to Mark Levin or something? I mean, where where did this come from? So I haven't trolled the right-wing websites yet to find out the specific, you know, story he was talking about. But I did search emperor penguins last night in the real media, the fact-based media. And uh, I found an interesting article over at The Guardian. Uh, the, ta- the emperor penguins are the tallest of the penguin species. Remember that movie that was made a couple of years ago about the penguins that was so cool? Yeah, March of the Penguins. It was like, you know, whoa, those were emperor penguins, I believe. And although maybe not, I don't know, whatever. In any case, the the... Uh, here's what Suzanne Goldberg writes in The Guardian on the 29th of, Jul- of June. This is just, what, th- three days ago? The entire population of Antarctica's famous emperor penguins f- could fall by a third by the end of the century because of disappearing sea ice, putting them at risk of extinction, re- researchers said on Sunday. So apparently what's happened is over on the Reich, one of these guys who are funded by, you know, the Koch brothers and the other fossil fuel interests, and the Koch brothers are, are a major fossil fuel interest. Koch, Koch Industries, you know, the largest American owner of coal tar sands in Canada and refineries and pipelines and all kinds of stuff. 
One of these shills on the right, and Politico pointed out how Mark Levin and Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, all these guys are taking money from, from right-wing think tanks that are funded by these, by these uh, fossil fuel billionaires. And not just money. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. And on the left, there's no analog to that. There's nobody who is, to the best of my knowledge, if there is, I'm not in on it. <laughs> <laughs> shall I say? Nobody's saying, hey, here's six million bucks. Will you please uh, pitch my line? But somehow somebody took this story and turned it into proof that there's no such thing as global warming, which is what the right does really well. You know, hey, up is down, left is right, black is white. Right. This was published in the journal Nature Climate Change, a peer-reviewed scientific pu publication. As the top predator in Antarctica, they note, the, the main threat to emperor penguin survival comes from climate change, which is melting the sea ice. Now, it is increasing the ice on land in Antarctica because you're getting more snow down there. Because the warmer it is, and anybody who's lived in, like, Vermont or New Hampshire or the Upper Peninsula of Michigan or North Dakota, you know, the, the northern plains states, knows what I am talking about. And I, I, I have lived in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and I've lived in Vermont, and I've lived in New Hampshire, in the northern part of both states, or the central northern part of both states. And what happens is when it gets really, really cold and it snows, you don't get real high stacks of snow. In fact, you typically don't get that much snow at all, because when it's really, really cold, the air can't hold that much moisture. And when it's really, really cold, as the snow falls, it literally evaporates into the air. The air is so dry that it absorbs the moisture out of the snow as it's falling, and a lot of it just ends up back in the air, and it doesn't fall on the ground. And when it does fall on the ground, it's this feathery, you know, uh, easily blown light stuff. It's, it's when you're close to 32 degrees, when it's snowing and it's 30 or 31 degrees out. That's when you get the really, really heavy snowfalls. That's when the clouds can, can, can drop out precipitation and it comes out of the clouds in, in, you know, in large quantities. The air can hold a lot of moisture. The, the, up, the, the clouds are typically only three, four, five thousand feet above the ground, at least the base of them. You get thunder snow, sometimes lightning in, along with the snow. So what's happening in Antarctica is the normal snowfall is increasing in many places because it is warming. Because when it's 10 below zero, you don't get much snowfall. When it's 25 degrees, you can get a hell of a lot of snowfall. Okay, so number one, you're getting more snowfall on the land. But around the perimeter of Antarctica, where the sea ice is, where, there, where there's snow that has turned into ice that is on water because the oceans are warming that ice is melting and the emperor penguins need that ice because they do they dive through holes in it to go down and collect the, the the krill and the little tiny fish and things that they eat and in fact they note in the article the loss of sea ice is reducing the supply of krill the tiny shrimp-like crustaceans that populate the southern ocean and are the emperor penguins main food source when the ice goes so do the krill Sea ice off the western coast of Antarctica, and this is just on the western coast, 
has been on the increase because of breakups of glaciers and winds. But by 2100, all 45 known emperor penguin colonies in Antarctica will be on decline because of the loss of sea ice. So somebody cherry-picked this information and then presented it as fact so that this poor schleb who called into our program yesterday with his whole, do you know the story of the emperor penguins? Let me tell you about this, uh, you know, science by anecdote. And, uh, you know, if he wants to call back and tell me which right winger he heard it from, I'm really curious. You know, who's been cherry-picking the science? But they are all in the pockets of these, of, of these oil billionaires, which is why they're denying science. I mean, if there was somebody who could make a buck profiting off denying gravity, they'd all be saying, yeah, you know, gravity, it's only a theory. It's time to trust my instincts. Close my eyes and believe It's time to try Defying gravity I think I'll try Defying gravity Kiss me goodbye I'm defying gravity And you won't bring me down Someone says they're so Some things I cannot change But till I try, I'll never know Science is science, and there is no doubt that if we burned all the fossil fuel that's in the ground right now, that the planet's going to uh, get too hot, and the consequences could be dire. Uh, so we can't burn it all? We're not going to be able to burn it all. What that means is, over the course of the next couple of decades, we're going to have to basically build a ramp from how we currently use energy to where we need to use energy. Do you notice what happened there? Hardly anyone in American media did. It seems like a simple, okay, even maybe a little boring uh, exchange about climate change. But in that exchange, President Obama acknowledged a fundamental truth about our dependence on fossil fuels that hardly anyone in any position of power ever seems to acknowledge. President Obama was asked about the international goal of limiting global temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius. Now, the International Energy Agency has concluded that meeting that target will require leaving two-thirds of the Earth's known reserves of oil, gas, and coal underground, unburned. And Thomas Friedman had asked, did the president agree with that conclusion? There is no doubt that if we burned all the fossil fuel that's in the ground right now, that the planet's going to... Uh, get too hot and the consequences could be dire uh, so we can't burn it all we're not going to be able to burn it all we're not going to be able to burn it all we can't burn it all no one ever says that at least no u.s president until now and to forestall really cataclysmic levels of climate change the necessary follow-through of leaving two-thirds of the earth's fossil fuel reserves in the ground would revolutionize global energy practices as journalist mark hertzgard has points out in a new piece in bloomberg businessweek which leads us to the fundamental paradox of this president, that the steps he has taken thus far in climate are easily the most forward-leaning, aggressive of any U.S. president, and yet they are still very far from what actually must be done. Joining me now, the aforementioned Mark Hertzgard, also author of Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. Um, do you think people missed how significant that little exchange was? 
the rest of the American media missed it, and I don't really quite know how, because they're all on the same email list that I was right. for that broadcast. But I think it partly gets back to what you were talking with Eric about, that there's maybe, uh, yeah, the media's doing a slightly better job, but there's not a lot of climate literacy, I think, within the media. So they missed the importance of what Obama said there, that two-thirds of the fossil fuel has to stay in the ground. It's not just that no American politician has said that. I can't think of a head of state or a head of government in the world that has acknowledged that yet. Right. All we hear is big story. All we hear is all of the above, right? We hear uh, this idea that like, oh yeah, at some point we're going to put a price on the thing and the caps and the but like the brute fact is like a lot of it's just got to stay in the ground and that's such a it sounds so radical and impossible when you hear it, but it's the truth. It is radical, but it, you know, science does not care about what politics thinks is radical or unreasonable. The science is the science, as the president said. And uh, so we are going to have to leave it in the ground. And what's ironic with the president saying that is that his own policy completely contradicts right. what he acknowledges the science requires. And it contradicts it because they have put so much emphasis on things like fracking, which have in the short term brought down carbon emissions, which the White House is very proud of, in the long term is just part of that same pool of carbon that's got to stay in there. Look, if you take the two-thirds imperative seriously, you've got to stop fracking. The whole point of fracking is to get that two-thirds that we can't get out with conventional right. drilling. And uh, I would disagree, though, that fracking has actually lowered the emissions. That's what they say, but that's not what the emerging science indicates. Uh, it actually I, I should say this, that carbon emissions. The, 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 the methane emissions, emissions are, yeah. the greenhouse emissions the greenhouse are probably emissions. much, much bigger. Right. The greenhouse yes. emissions are going up. And that is why I think that, uh, you know, John Podesta, who is Obama's now top climate aide, told me in November that history is going to judge Obama this, pretty hard. This was fascinating. This is in your Harper's piece, which is all about this administration climate. It says, in a two-hour interview conducted just weeks before his return to Obama's inner circle as White House in the White House. Uh, Podesta told me the president had been willing to take risks and expend political capital on climate issue. But 50 years from now, is that going to seem like enough? Podesta asked. I think the answer to that is going to be no. No. I thought he, that was very brave of John Podesta to say. Well, it was several weeks before he we went to the White House. Now, it seems to me that since Podesta has entered the White House, we have seen renewed focus and vigor on this issue. Um, Absolutely. It, it, do you think he is partly responsible for that? Absolutely. And look, the president asked him to come back. Right. I think that Barack Obama wants to do the right thing on climate change. He has two daughters. I have a daughter. I know you have two kids. Anybody who's a father who's a parent, you know that this has got to be dealt with. Right. And uh, John Podesta has taken this very seriously for 25 years. He organized the Earth Day, I found out, in 1990. He was the chief organizer for Earth Day on the yeah. National Mall. He's been pushing climate change for a long time. It's kind of too bad that he wasn't there at the start the of the Obama administration. I think things would have been very different on climate. That's very interesting. Journalist Mark Hertzgar. You better do the right thing Yes, you better do the right thing You better do the right thing Yes, you better do the right thing One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction 
restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. The BBC has decided that they will no longer give a platform to climate science deniers. Now, to be particularly um, clear or very clear about what they're doing is they want to ensure that they won't create a false balance between climate science deniers and those who have agreed, that who have come to a consensus that climate change has happened because of human activity. Now, it was all published in a report from the BBC Trust, and I want to read you a piece of it. They said that the Trust wishes to emphasize the importance of attempting to establish where the weight of scientific agreement may be found and make that clear to audiences. So debates involving people like uh, Bill Nye and then a climate science denier or a creationist would no longer happen on an outlet like BBC. And I think that that's a good thing because we do have a problem in the United States with certain cable news networks that want to create a false balance between two opposing sides. As a journalist, as a news source that's supposed to give the audience facts about a particular case, you're supposed to be honest. You're supposed to do fact fact-checking. So having some climate science denier on with someone who is actually well-trained and knows what's really going on with the environment doesn't really make sense, especially if you treat them as equals. So they pointed out several things. The UN uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that there's a 95% certainty that it, climate change, of course, exists and that it is man-made. Mm -hmm. And so they said, look, when you go to look for scientists who are against that, it's really hard to find them. And another reason that it's hard to find them is because 97% of scientists agree that it's man-made uh, global warming climate change, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of times they say that they have to refer to this single guy, Bob Carter, who's an Australian geologist who's retired but is paid by the industry-affiliated Heartland Institute. Right. He's literally paid to say this BS, right? So they always bring him on. But they're like, why are you bringing on a guy that you know is a paid shill of the industry because you literally cannot find any other scientists to come on air to say it's true. You also couldn't find a scientist to come on air and to say the world is flat. You should stop looking. Yeah. I mean, look, there's that there's this ridiculous obsession with being fair and balanced. And, you know, being objective and being neutral are two completely different things, right? You want to ensure that you're giving the audience the facts. And so if someone is already corrupted by corporate money, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't lead to journalistic integrity to invite that person on a program and share their point of view. They've been corrupted by money. So I love that they're coming out and they're saying this. Hopefully this type of ideology will spread across all news outlets and, and they'll do the same thing, but who knows? You know, John Oliver did a great skit about this where he said, look, if I had to represent it honestly, I would have a debate. And he had a climate change person on, mm -hmm. an actual scientist, in one, of, in one of his segments. And then he had a denier. And then he brought in 98 other scientists to back up the one scientist who was telling the truth. You can't have a 50-50 debate when it's not a 50-50 debate. So yes, by being 50-50, you're being neutral. But you're not being objective about the actual facts, which is that 97% of the world's scientists say there's no question that climate change is real and it is man-made.
Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from Philadelphia. I wanted to comment on the recent show about the refugee crisis at the southern border, the Mexican border, uh, especially with the children coming in here. My thoughts on this go back to a comment I left a couple months ago when you had an episode about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, how I felt that sovereignty is not a great frame to deal with modern-day problems, you know, in a global world, global civilization, however you want to put it. And I think this situation really illustrates how even the U.S. government only pays lip service to the idea of sovereignty. You know, so many U.S. laws, particularly anything to do with the war on terror, the war on drugs, we have this concept called extraterritoriality, basically the idea that U.S. law should apply wherever we want it to, anywhere around the world, even places that have their own governments and are, you know, in theory, sovereign states. So when you look at things like, you know, South America, Central America, you get things like NAFTA, CAFTA, you know, DEA, propping up dictatorships throughout the 70s and 80s because, hey, at least they're not communists. Uh, Iran-Contra, invasion of Nicaragua, so on and so forth. The, you know, the history is all out there. But then once the natural and possibly inevitable consequences of these policies come into play and all these refugees start coming to our borders to get jobs, to avoid violence, to not get killed by gangs, etc., then we retreat behind this concept of sovereignty and say, oh, no, no, we've got our borders. We can't possibly, you know, just let people come in willy-nilly from anywhere. I mean, we're a sovereign nation, despite the fact that our disrespect for the concept of sovereignty is what got these problems started in the first place. And, you know, I don't know how to actually address this in any useful way, but it just shows how I think, you know, even now, a lot of countries in the U.S. in particular don't really take the concept of sovereignty seriously unless it benefits them directly. And that's especially true, I think, when it comes to the immigration crisis in the United States. Uh, thanks for playing my comment, Jay, and have a good one. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I just listened to the recent episode on Israel. First, I had some umbrage to take with, with Jenks characterization of the uh, the premacy of uh, you know the supremacy of nonviolent resistance and I've made this point in a, in a previous call that that the, the conditions have to be exactly right and he's wrong in two senses in that in all three of those cases they had varying degrees of violent resistance concurrent or in the case of Mandela he was part of the violent resistance and the other piece of it is that it has to, there has to be some interest in the occupying power in promoting that peaceful over the continuing violent resistance. So, you know, as long as it's in Netanyahu and everybody else that's in, that's all of the elite in Israel, as long as it's in their interest to keep abusing physically with military force the Palestinians, one guy launches a rocket is going to trump a thousand people peacefully walking into a settlement. And if, if, if you counsel them otherwise, you're just telling people to walk into their you know, incarceration and torture and death and so on. So it's really important to realize nonviolent resistance has a time and a place and a context, and it has to be well thought out. And sometimes if the people that you're working with don't feel any shame in hurting you, it doesn't work at all. The other piece that I wanted to consider is the, the piece of the, the rockets. I just want to mention this because it's, a, it's an interesting part of this kind of dynamic. The suicide bomber, the unguided rocket, the improvised explosive device, 
is looked down on compared to the fighter jet, the drone, the, you know, the tank. And it's important to watch out for this because we have an inherent bias in a lot of our news sources and so forth that if you have the multi-million dollar weapon system, there's somehow you're slightly more moral if you bomb if you bomb that uh, cafe from a fighter jet or a drone than if you bomb it with an explosive vest or a car bomb. I think that distinction is wrong, and I think you know ultimately it can cloud things. So I just wanted to bring that up too: is that that the idea that that there are moral weapons and immoral weapons is I don't think true. I think there's moral acts and immoral acts. You either were justified in that use of violence or you weren't. And uh, whether you did it with a suicide vest or, or, or a jet doesn't really matter. Thanks, and I enjoy the show. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Oren Ashkenazi from Seattle. I just listened to your episode on Gaza. As you might have been able to guess from my name, my father is from Israel, and I have family there who I love very much and worry about every day. Because of that, I try not to pass judgment on either side in conflicts like what's happening right now. I think about how I would feel if rockets were falling on my head every day. I live nice and safe in Seattle where no one has ever tried to kill me. But I just can't do it anymore. Israel has all the power in the situation. They have the weapons and the political authority to do whatever they want to the Palestinians. People are being killed every day and it doesn't have to happen. Netanyahu says he has no choice, but he and the Israeli government had every choice. We wouldn't be in this situation if they had actually taken the two-state peace talks seriously. They don't seem to realize that a Palestinian state is going to need at least some land to exist. The only reason Hamas has the support it does is that the Palestinians in Gaza feel so oppressed by Israel that anyone who fights back looks like the good guys to them. What's worse is that I don't even know what this invasion of Gaza is supposed to accomplish. They've been blockading Gaza for years and Hamas still managed to build plenty of rockets. Are they going to destroy Hamas and let someone worse take over? Are they going to leave Hamas with even more popular support so this can happen again in two years? What I do know is that people are dying. My father's country is using weapons paid for by my taxes to kill people, and I want it to stop. I just hope Israel wakes up before it's too late. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for the great show. You have the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So many of you, if not all of you, will recall that I just wrapped up a big fundraising campaign. We we're raising money to build a new mobile application for the show. It's going to be great for the show and all of the programs that we like to support. It's very exciting for everyone. Uh, you know, many of you apparently thought it was a good idea. We ended up going past our fundraising goal. And it's, so it was all very exciting. Unfortunately, I don't have an update on that project, but I promise the wheels are turning. Uh, I'm working on getting that built. But it just takes a long time. That's, that's the nature of mobile application development. So that's happening right now, but that's in the future. The impetus for that project was the fact that it is incredibly hard for independent media outlets like myself and um, you know most of the shows that I support. It's hard for us to market ourselves. We, we, it's difficult to get our name out there and to find new listeners. It's one of the hardest things we have to do. And so it turns out that right now is the perfect time to launch an old-fashioned marketing campaign, listener-supported 
marketing campaign. And I haven't done this in years and years, but right now, I promise, is just about the best time I've seen in a long time. So, you know, the, the fundraiser we just did was was very exciting. Lots of people supported it, but a lot of people weren't able to. You know, it, it was a it was a fundraiser. A lot of people just don't have the money to give for a project like that. But this marketing campaign that I want to do has nothing to do with money whatsoever. Like I said, it's completely old school and it has to do with getting our name out there on the biggest search engines available for podcasts. And right now, the two biggest search engines available are iTunes, still to this day, and Stitcher. So what I would like to do is have, for a short period of time, maybe a month or so, a big concerted effort to really pump up our five-star reviews in both of those search engines. Right now, we're hovering at just below 2,000 reviews in iTunes and, I don't know, 60-something reviews in Stitcher. They, they only opened up their uh, platform for reviews not that long ago, and, and most people aren't even aware of it. But if we can pump up and get you know another 1,000 reviews in iTunes, get us up into the 3,000 range, and, and dive in with just 300 reviews on Stitcher, we think that will give us a really nice boost in both of those search engines and you know get us featured and all sorts of things like that. And then here's here's the kicker. This is why it's really really particularly good timing right now. So the nerdiest podcast I listen to by a mile is, is the program that's actually run by the company that hosts my show Libsyn. And so Rob at Libsyn was making the point that about a month from now iOS 8 for iPhones is going to be released. And with that, I didn't know this until he uh, mentioned it, with iOS 8, the podcasting app is going to be one of the built-in dedicated apps that people can't delete, which is annoying for a lot of people, but it, it'll be like the Stocks app or the Notes app, things like that. And so there are hundreds of millions of people who have iPhones right now, and when every one of them ends up eventually upgrading to iOS 8, they're going to have the podcast app show up on their phone automatically. And if even some small percentage of that hundreds of millions of people look at it and say, hey, what's this? And click on it, those are going to be you know, millions of people who can potentially find podcasts by clicking on that app. And so if we can get best of left into you know prime featured real estate in the iTunes store and the podcasting app then you see where I'm, I, you know, I don't have to explain any further right like if we can use the next month to suddenly shock the iTunes algorithm into uh, seeing that we've gotten a thousand new five star reviews within you know a month and that ends up getting us enough attention that we get featured, then all of a sudden, as soon as iOS 8 drops and everyone has a podcasting app, ours will be the show that they find. So that's the idea. It's not complicated. It just takes me asking you to take some time out of your day, go to iTunes, find the best of the left, leave a five-star review, go to Stitcher, find best of the left, leave a five-star review, get a thousand new reviews in iTunes, about 250 new reviews in Stitcher, and I will be 
happy as a clam, and, uh, and, and then we just see what happens. But I promise, as old school as this strategy is, it is still the most effective way to you know, increase your ranking in these search engines. I, I, th- I think the best way to get people to find your show is through word of mouth. Second best way is to be featured in these stores. So thanks in advance for your help. I have no doubt whatsoever that we are going to meet these goals. I mean, if we can raise $16,000 to build a new mobile application, it is obscene to imagine that we can't get 1,000 reviews in iTunes and 300 reviews in Stitcher in a month. No big deal at all. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show, as I've just been saying, by leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and also by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder why we can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past our sad stories and forget who it is we're from.